Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome to another hour dedicated to exploring exactly what enlightenment means and what it might be to be enlightened. An hour designed to help us integrate all of our knowledge and perhaps even challenge some of our ideas about the world we live in and the people we have become. This is an hour for the open-minded willing to risk their foregone conclusions and perhaps discover an entirely new dimension in their thoughts and being. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right. Now, every week I read some of your letters as our way of respecting the very important role you have in helping us to make this show successful. Last week, our guest was James Von Prague, and our discussion was all about children and his book, Growing Up in Heaven. Michelle wrote, wonderful show. So help we can get James back for another one. Well, stay tuned, Michelle, for we're going to be doing just exactly that. Elaine wrote, for me, this show came at just the right time. Thank you very much. James was so full of caring kindness, it came through the radio. Judy wrote, great show. Thanks, everyone. Being in the chat room is great, too. They do like your chat room, Rav. We have a cool chat room. What can I say? Housecat from our chat room added, wow, this show is hot. Wish it were a three-hour show. You know, we've often talked about making a two-hour show. We should pursue that, you know? Jenny wrote, love, love, love your work. Supporting your company is money well spent. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate your comment and sentiment, Jenny. Thank you. James wrote, just finished reading mind programming from persuasion and brainwashing to self-help and practical metaphysics. Great. G, great reading and instruction. R, for reliable information. E, for easy to read. A, for awesome. T, teacher is great. What can I say to that? But thank you very much, James. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But I do invite you to opine by sending your email to Eldon at eldentaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. You can also just leave comments on my website. I do try to read all of your letters. Obviously, we can't get them all on the air. And, you know, I'm going to try and shorten down the amount of time we have been giving him in the past. But with that said, I highly value your input. And I do encourage you to please provide your feedback. And once again, thank you for your continued support. Now to today's show, life before life. The idea of life after death is a subject that cynics often debase by using that old Freudian logic, quote, religion is a sugar-coated neurotic crutch, close quote. They may continue by drawing on the words of one of my favorite philosophers, although I often disagreed with him, John Wisdom by pointing out that it's a bit like having daddy at the end of the hall when you have a nightmare or become afraid. The creator, by whatever name, is, of course, reason to be responsible for providing an afterlife. As such, it doesn't matter if you're a deist or theist or even an agnostic. Proof of the afterlife does not necessarily imply the living existence of a creator, at least according to that logic. After all, as some have insisted, God may have created everything, but then he must have died or there would be no problem with evil in the world, and so forth. I have often used my radio show to investigate this matter and see just what evidence I could find. I am aware of the many stories regarding reincarnation, but as a skeptic by nature, 
I am also aware of the frauds. The famous case of Bridie Murphy, by way of example, is a story that grabbed the imagination of the world, but turned out to be easily dismissed as false or fabricated. We have spoken with mediums and researched the history of their dialogues, seances, and whatnot, all calling upon the deceased to share information about the other side. We have also discussed the skeptics' opinions on matters of this nature, and we know that Professor Ray Hyman has duped many an audience into believing he was psychic when in fact he employed only the skills and tools of a good psychologist. We have also discussed the papers of famous debunkers like Michael Shermer, and as a result, we know all about cold readings, warm readings, and the like. Indeed, as a former criminalist myself, one who specialized in lie detection and interrogation, I know all about the information our faces and body can reveal without one ever speaking a word. So who or what can we trust? Well, our guest today brings us a new perspective, that of children's memories of previous lives. For the past 40 years, doctors at the University of Virginia Medical Center have tried to answer that question. Researchers have investigated more than 2,500 cases of young children reporting memories of previous lives. The founder of this work, Ian Stevenson, MD, always wrote for scientific audiences. Now Jim Tucker, Dr. Jim Tucker, MD, a child psychiatrist who currently directs the research, has written a book for the general public entitled Life Before Life, a scientific investigation of children's memories of previous lives. This is a great book. It's not not just bringing science to, to all of us, but it'll give you goosebumps reading this book. In many cases, the children's statements have been verified to match the life of one particular deceased individual. The children usually begin making such statements at the age of two or three. They may talk about a previous family, things they did when they were an adult, or the way they died in their previous life, at times showing great emotion as they do. Many children have birthmarks or defects that have been documented to match wounds on the body of the deceased individual. Some have also recognized family members or friends of that person. A particular note where our skeptics and cynics are concerned is this one. One of Dr. Stevenson's books led the Journal of American Medical Association to state that, quote, in regard to reincarnation, he has painstakingly and unemotionally collected a detailed series of cases in which the evidence is difficult to explain on any other grounds. All right, our guest today, none other than Dr. Jim Tucker, and he is a medical director of the Child and Family Psychiatry Clinic and associate professor of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences at the University of Virginia. His main research interests are children who seem to remember previous lives, and prenatal and birth memories. He is a board-certified child psychiatrist who worked for several years with Ian Stevenson before taking over Stevenson's work upon his retirement in 2002. Dr. Tucker attended the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where he graduated Phi Beta Kappa with a degree in psychology and then later a medical degree. He then completed a residency in general psychiatry and a fellowship in child psychiatry at the University of Virginia. 
After nine years in private practice, he returned to the university and since then has published numerous articles in scientific journals. He lives in Charlottesville, Virginia, with his wife, Christy McDowell Tucker, a clinical psychologist. So let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Jim Tucker. Uh, thanks very much for having me. That's indeed our pleasure, sir. Let, let's begin, if we can, by having you tell our audience a little about yourself and how and when you first became interested in, uh, and I don't think you even used the word reincarnation, but past life memories. Well, it's certainly not something that I uh, grew up believing in. I, I actually grew up Southern Baptist in, in North Carolina and um, had a very sort of mainstream view of things, but always an interest in, in question, the big questions as far as life after death and, and spirituality and that sort of thing. Um, but I, after I trained here at UVA, as, as you mentioned in the introduction, I was just in private practice having sort of a normal career. Um, when I learned about the, the work that Ian Stevenson had done, um, I was reading about it when I read in the local newspaper that uh, his research division had gotten a grant to study the effects that near-death experiences have on the lives of, of people who have them. So feeling somewhat unfulfilled in my private practice, I, I just gave them a call to see if they needed help uh, interviewing patients for the study and started coming to the division just an hour a week just as a hobby, basically, um, but became more and more intrigued by the work and, and eventually... After a couple of years, Ian asked me if I wanted to study some cases of children talking about past lives, which I was very excited to do. Took a trip to Asia, and um, then soon thereafter, started came here half time, and then a year a year later came on full time, and that's now been 11 years ago. So it uh, looks like it took. Well, so but you were raised Southern Baptist. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I, the idea of reincarnation, the idea of, you know, uh, I mean, that's that's pretty foreign to a Southern Baptist background, isn't it? Well, indeed it is, although it's interesting. I mean, it's certainly foreign to me, but it is uh -huh. interesting that about 20% of American Christians, based on polling, actually believe in reincarnation, uh, right. which is way more than you would expect. I mean, it's a minority, of course, but it's way more than you would expect it to be and. and there are people who seem to just hold it as a private belief, or at least are open to the possibility of past lives, even though they're certainly not hearing about them in church. Right, and and, and there are many theological scholars, uh, uh, philosophical scholars as well, philosophy scholars, I should say, that that point out that uh, reincarnation was something believed by, um, you know, the Hebrew people, but but was hunted out during the Third Ecumenical Council and stricken from most of the texts, or so they argue. All right. Well, the, How I mean, it, is, it is sort of a complicated history, but in any case, it's clear that a number of early Christian groups did believe in reincarnation uh, before right. it eventually you know, got taken out of the overall belief. Right. Some things, I think, you know, and, and I don't know, you correct me, Doctor, but... Uh, you can have, you can be raised with a belief uh, or be involved in an environment where uh, things like deja vu, the, the common ordinary, what we think of as paranormal kinds of experiences are experienced by most people in some way, shape, or form. And so they, they have a feeling that uh, there is more credibility to it, even though they won't admit it because of 
the environment, uh, the peer pressure that they live in. Well, that's right. Of course, again, as you look at the polling, I mean, the percentages of Americans who believe a lot of things as far as psychic, ESP, all of that, I mean, the percentages are quite high. Um, and, of course, if, if you're open to that sort of possibility, then I think you're more likely to see it. Um, so, but but I, I, I concur with you, but so how has your work and research influenced your traditional role as a medical doctor? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, to some extent, um, I've kept them separate in the sense that, I mean, I still spend about half of my time in the clinic uh, seeing patients and help training the child psychiatry fellows for them to see patients. And it doesn't come up in an overt way. Uh, it almost never. Um, I think viewing kids as sort of being open to what they may have to teach us, you know, I hope in, in some ways, makes me a better child psychiatrist, but it, it uh, I'm certainly not preaching about past lives while, while I'm seeing kids in the clinic. I, I would think, however, the attention that your book would give you and, and the, your, the awareness people have might even actually attract some, some parents and some children to you. Is that true or false? Um, yes, it, it's true occasionally. The, the uh, I think, I'm, I think most of my families have no idea that I even do this research, but um, yeah, I recently had one where a kid just sort of blurted out, uh, my mom says you're famous because you've got a Wikipedia page. Um, <laughs> so, you know, people, uh, a lot of people I'm sure think it's nonsense, but, uh, but a lot of people find these possibilities of, of life after death and past lives really interesting. So they, they're right. fine with them if, if I'm looking into it. All right. Now, you know, you, you heard the setup piece. The skeptics criticize the entire notion of an afterlife to say nothing of reincarnation or some wheel of rebirth. Mm. They often consider, indeed, themselves to be the intellectual elite and like to place those of us who might find evidence for a paradigm outside the parameters of their own. Uh, what can I say? To be lacking in intelligence or at mm. least... Uh, you know, they attempt to marginalize us in that way. I'm sure you've encountered some of this. How do you deal with it? How does it uh, affect you? Well, what I encourage people to do is look at the evidence. I mean, it's it's fine to say uh, that religion is just sort of wishful thinking, but the fact that we might wish it doesn't make it true or not true. You know, the, the question is, what does the evidence say? And I, I think people who are bound to sort of the, the 19th century paradigm of, of materialism um, are not being open to uh, what certainly this work and, and work like it has to say, but also really, I mean, with, with 20th century physics and quantum physics, we, you know, which none of us completely understands, but it, it's clear that the phys, even the physical world is much more complicated than we have any idea just in our everyday lives. And that the uh, the effect that observation and consciousness have on the physical world is um, is noteworthy. And it, to me, it, it suggests that we need to at least consider the possibility that, that consciousness is an entity that may be able to be separate from the physical world, therefore meaning uh, that life can continue after the, the brain and the body die. 
Okay, let's let's do this. Can you? I mean, briefly summarize what your research is. Well, what it has involved for now, actually, fifty years, is um, exploring cases of young children from various parts of the world who report memories of previous lives, and um, these are not kids who have undergone hypnosis or anything like that, but just at a very early age, spontaneously start talking about the past life. Um, they are not talking about being famous people like kings or queens or anything like that, uh, but just describing very ordinary lives and, and normally very recent lives. The, the average interval between the death of the previous person and the birth of the child is actually only 15 months. So we're talking about very recent lives. Um, some of them talk about being a deceased family member, so you know, a deceased grandparent or something. Uh, but others will describe being strangers in other locations. And if they give enough details like the name of the location, then people have often gone there and discovered that someone has lived and died whose life matches the details of the child gave. Um, and, you know, that requires an explanation. Um, Sometimes when the kids have been taken to those places, they, they have appeared to recognize people or, or places. And um, these are cases that we have investigated as carefully as we can to determine exactly what has happened. Uh, they're easiest to find these cases in places with a belief in reincarnation. But they have been found wherever anyone's looked for them. They've been found on every continent except uh, Antarctica. And... Um, they are found here in the States, even with, with some families that do believe in reincarnation, but many who had never given it a second thought until their kids started saying these things. Um, you know, but, I, I think, I'm sorry, go ahead, Doctor. No, no, go ahead. I, I think one of the, the best things, that one of the things that I enjoyed most about your book that I'd like to get said is that when you read it, you are really reading just case studies. You're not reading opinion, you're reading you know, X followed by Y followed by A followed by uh, the way you have gone about this. It really does become evidentiary, like a number of different witnesses, as opposed to some form of, you know, argument that's pedantic in its nature that is attempting to sell me a belief. Um, well, that's incredibly right. I mean, well. I, go ahead. Well, thank you. I mean, that, that's certainly what we're attempting to do. We're. we're not really trying to convince anyone of anything. We're trying to present the evidence and then let people make up their own minds. And when my book, to some extent, is sort of the greatest hits collection of, of you know, the, the strongest cases that we've collected over these last 50 years, and uh, then uh, you know, people can think about it what they may. You know, and, and when you say that, you can read one case, and in that case, uh, you, perhaps... Uh, you have a child that remembers where a playground is or where a church is hidden behind a building or or they, you know, some. But when you read that case, you can look at it and say, well, perhaps that's, you know, coincidence or that's strange. That's anomalous. But but when you read one after another, after another, after another, there come, comes a point where the preponderance of evidence is, is it's it's almost like a baseball bat hitting you on the head, suggesting there is there is a whole lot more going on here than than some idea of coincidence. Well, I agree with you, and I think, as I actually say in the book at the end, I think if you look at the strongest cases as a group, 
And the best explanation is that there are these instances where uh, memories and then emotions and sometimes even physical traumas seem to have carried on after the, the person died and, and then uh, be reborn, as it were, and into another life. It's it's also very interesting to me and, and compelling to me that none of this is suggested. Uh, you mentioned when you opened uh, that none of your interviews were done under hypnosis. And so much of the work in in this area where theories of reincarnation or past lives are concerned are done with hypnosis. And, you know, as a former forensic hypnosis expert, I know so well how easy it is to just suggest an idea that, you know, is then taken aboard. And whether, I mean, we have everything from false memory syndrome to, you know, stories like the Bridie Murphy where, you know, she is just literally suggested into recalling information that then becomes confabulated into a story that a storyline so the kind of evidence in my view that you're presenting where these children are just coming in and they're just spontaneously saying these things they're not being led etc is much more uh, valuable i believe than the information we get out of hypnosis do you share that view well i do share that opinion i mean i think well, there may be some individual hypnosis cases that are interesting. The, the, as you know, the hypnosis, the tool itself, is so unreliable, meaning it's very inconsistent. I mean, in, in criminal right. cases, you can get witnesses, you know, recalling license plate numbers, but then you get a lot of where the mind just fills in the blanks. And, no, uh, and or they'll lie. And, and, yeah. and there are very effective liars <laughs> under well, that's hypnosis. True too, but, but, I mean, even if the hypnotist or the uh, hypnosis therapist is trying not to leave the person just undergoing hypnosis with the idea that you may recall a past life is suggestion enough where it, it fuels the possibility that people will see images and think they have memories and, and then once they're out of it, determining what's a, a false memory versus a true memory under hypnosis becomes extremely hard to do because people can't really tell the difference. I agree, totally agree. And I think, you know, of course, one of the miasmas of that entire area of work is that all you have to do is have a half a dozen, you know, people that in the same room remember being famous people and the, and the critics and the, and the cynics are in there right away beating it up. And, and you know, that, that deters a lot of people from really looking at the evidence, uh, uh, looking at the material like you have. Listen, when we come back from the break, I, I'm going to ask you about some very specific stories, ask you to tell us what you have learned uh, very specifically, so that our audience gets the flavor. Uh, let's you know, let's let's plan on doing that. But we've got a hard break coming up, Doctor. Okay. So you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment. We're talking with Doctor Jim Tucker about his marvelous book. And I, and I use that word. I don't use it lightly. It is a marvelous book. Life before life: children's memories of previous lives. If you're not already in our chat room, now's a great time to join in the conversation. Just go to eldentaylor.com/forward/slash/chat. Stay with us during the break. You won't want to miss what's coming up in the next half. We'll be right back after these words from our friends. Do you feel like you've become lost in a funhouse? Only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto the path leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. 
read Eldon Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions, now expanded, updated, and revised. It will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free from your current perceptions and begin your journey to how high is up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Close your eyes. Imagine your goals and dreams. What's preventing you from accomplishing them? Most often, we are our own worst enemies. I can't. I'm not good enough. It's time to reprogram that inner dialogue. Replace all those negative self-images with, I'm good. I am powerful. I can do anything. Eldon Taylor's Inner Talk patented subliminal technology does just that. Researched at numerous universities such as Stanford and by governments such as Mexico and Germany, InnerTalk has repeatedly been proven effective at changing your self-talk. Stop imagining your goals and make them a reality today. Visit www.innertalk.com. That's I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K.com. InnerTalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. And welcome back. If you just joined us, we're discussing with Dr. Jim Tucker his intriguing book, Life Before Life, Children's Memories of Previous Lives. But before we get back to today's show, I want to invite you to like our Facebook fan page for Provocative Enlightenment Radio. As a fan of the show, you will receive special announcements and incentives from time to time as our way of thanking you for your support. Indeed, we have a special event and special announcement going on right now for all of those that have liked our fan page. And you can learn about it and learn about how you can receive over 100 free gifts, and there's absolutely nothing to buy, but you have to go to the Facebook fan page. So uh, I invite you all, you know, please uh, join us on Facebook. I would also like you uh, like to invite you to join me on Facebook while you're there. And, of course, you can follow me on Twitter. If you like our show, do spread the word. We genuinely appreciate your support. Okay, let's, let's get back to the show. Before the break, we were discussing with Dr. Tucker uh, the idea that, you know, in this half we would actually talk about some of the research and some of the stories by way of particulars. So, Dr. Tucker, of, of all the the work that you've done, of all the stories, can you share a couple of uh, of your favorites with us? Oh, uh, sure. Um, let me start with one. This is one. Ian Stevenson was my mentor who who did this work for decades before I got involved, and and uh, he focused mostly on cases in Asia. Uh, one was a little girl named Kumkum who was born in India in a uh, village. Uh, but when she was three years old, she started saying that she had lived in a city called Dorbanga, and a city of a couple hundred thousand people. And she didn't just give the city where she said she had lived, but she named the district of the city. Um, this is a city 25 miles away that uh, certainly she had never been to. And um, her parents didn't know anyone, in, certainly in, in the uh, district that she named. Um, but she started 
talking a lot about having lived there and made dozens of statements, and, and her aunt wrote down 18 of them before anyone went to, to look, and, and they uh, included the, the district where she said she lived, uh, the name of her son, and the fact that he worked with a hammer, the name of her grandson, uh, the, the town where her father had lived in that life, the fact that he lived near mango orchards, the fact she had a pond at her house, and, and some very specific details like the fact that she had an iron safe, she had a sword hanging near the cot where she slept, and, and even had, that she had a pet snake that she fed milk to. So a lot of statements. And then eventually, um, her father had a friend who had an employee who um, lived, uh, who was from Darpanga. He went there and went to the district that she had named and found, that in fact, there was a woman who had lived and died five years before uh, Kumko was born whose life matched all the, the statements that the aunt had written down. And they were certainly, that woman's family are complete strangers to, to Kumkum's family um, before and really even after the case was solved because uh, Kumkum's father visited the, the other family once, but he never allowed her to visit. Um, he apparently wasn't very happy that, he was fairly well-to-do, he wasn't very happy that she seemed to be recalling the life of a blacksmith's wife. Um, but there's certainly no reason to think that, that her family would have put her up to saying these things. Um, another sort of, just sort of interesting tidbit is that she claimed that she had been murdered, and the, the woman who had died before her, there was no official uh, finding that she had been killed, but she had died under very suspicious circumstances during a, a uh, family fight over money, and... and um, Kumkum seemed to, to even have knowledge of that. Um, so that was one where it's a long distance away, 25 miles away, no contact at all, very specific statements, and, and they all match for this woman who died before the Kumkum was born. Now, I mean, you're a scientist. Uh, and, you know, years ago I can remember reading uh, David Pete and David, uh, it was Pete and Bohm, I guess, uh, collaborated on a book called... Uh, Synchronicity in Science or Serendipity in Science, something of that nature. Forgive me for not knowing the exact title. But I know that you're aware that, you know, uh, somehow, some way, we can have uh, a team of scientists in the Soviet Union in total sequester, a team uh, somewhere in Europe, a team here in the United States. They'll all be working on the same thing. They'll all have the same discovery. They'll all have the same ideas at the same time, not knowing that each other is working on these things. And, uh, you know, Jung kind of thought about or, or gave us the idea of this collective unconscious and, and this whole model of how, you know, we may well be tapping into, um, what, a larger mind of sorts, the collective mind. What is the probability, do you think, Dr. Tucker, that let's take this particular case that you just uh, shared with us, Indeed, that information is being gained some way uh, other than through direct recall as a result of a rebirth. Well, it's a very interesting question that you ask, if I understand it correctly. Basically, it's, a, it's this information sort of that kids have access to paranormally in a way other than reincarnation. Yes. Um, and And... There are, are, are arguments against that, although it's certainly 
worth considering. But but one argument that's certainly very different from how the kids experience this. I mean, they, it's you know I just sort of listed the, the statements, but there's often a very strong emotional piece to this. They they may cry daily for years to be taken to their previous family because they miss them so much. So this is certainly not like say an adult psychic who comes up with with interesting information about someone. As a completely matter-of-fact way, this is not matter-of-fact for these kids. Um, Indeed, you know, when I read your book, I, I, the the idea of this obviously occurred to me. Uh, but I thought, you know, it it was easily dismissed when you did discuss the emotional side, the the emotional content that these children went through, together with the scarring that often accompany mm. the story. Share a story that, that includes that kind of scarring, would you please? Sure. So, yeah, these are um, cases where kids are born with birthmarks or birth defects that match wounds, usually the fatal wound, um, on the body of the previous person. And um, when there's a little boy that... that uh, that Ian studied in Thailand, a little boy named Chennai, who, um, when he was three years old, he, uh, well, first of all, let me say he was born with two birthmarks, which I'll, I'll talk about in a minute. But when he was three years old, he talked about having been a school teacher and um, gave his name. He said he was Buakai and that he had been shot on the way to school. Uh, he named family members and also named the place where he lived before begged his uh, his grandmother to take him to his previous parents. So eventually she did. They, they went in a bus to near the previous place. He then led the way to a house where there was an older couple there that he seemed to recognize. And in fact, they'd had a child named Buakai Lonak, uh, who had been a school teacher who had been killed several years before uh, Chennai was born. And the thing as far as the birthmark goes... Um, the there was no autopsy report that Ian could find, but he talked with the school teacher's widow, who said that the police had told her that they knew that he'd been shot from behind as, as he rode his bike to school one day because he had what you typically see, a small round entrance wound, which is on the back of his head, and then a larger, more irregularly shaped wound uh, toward the front, which would make it an exit wound. Well, Chennai was born with birthmarks that matched both the entrance and the exit wounds. He had this small, round birthmark on the back of his head and then a larger, much more irregularly shaped one toward the front. And um, Ian, in, in, he wrote a book called Reincarnation of Biology where he talked about over 200 of these birthmark birth defect cases. And he listened there that there were 18 cases of gunshot uh, victims, uh, cases where the child has been born with double birthmarks that match both the, the entrance and the exit when the previous person suffered. Wow. That's uh, pretty compelling. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, how did Dr. Stevenson actually get this work started? I mean, was did he have the interest or did it come up spontaneously or? Well, he did have an interest in it. He was having very much a mainstream career. In fact, he came here to be chairman of the Department of Psychiatry when he was still in his late 30s, sort of a young man in a hurry. Um, but he said when he interviewed, 
here that he told them he did have an interest in parapsychology, although he'd never done any work in that area. Um, but he had a lot of other interests, too, and they didn't think a whole lot about it. Um, but then he he began hearing about these cases from, from various parts of the world uh, of these young children, and um, he wrote a paper just sort of reviewing the reports he had seen. And then after that, uh, people contacted him with, with current cases. So he uh, eventually, uh, again, he was mainstream chairman of the department, but he eventually took a trip to India uh, for a month. By the time he took the trip, he'd heard about five cases, and when he was there, he found 25. And the wow. same thing happened in Sri Lanka, and, and he realized this phenomenon was a lot more common than anyone had known, and, and thought, you know, there must be something to this that's at least worth looking at. So for a number of years, he would do the research while also being chairman of the department, and eventually he was able to get enough funding to, to set up a, what's called an endowed chair where that would pay his salary so that he could step down as chairman and, and just do this research full time. Um, okay, now you've taken his position. So wh- where do you get your cases from now? Well, various places. I mean, the, the in the Asian cases, we have had people looking for cases for us, and they may learn about them in the newspaper or just um, overhearing or people talking about them. I've been focusing recently on American cases, and in, in this country, uh, we sort of have to let the cases come to us. I mean, you, you don't; the, these families don't tend to talk about it. Uh, so their neighbors or sometimes even the grandparents have no idea what the child's saying because people are embarrassed about it. Um, but, of course, with the, the miracle of the Internet, people find us and, and they email us, and, and um, sometimes they're wanting our help. Sometimes they're just reporting the story and, and, and sometimes, I mean, we get a lot of reports, but sometimes they're interesting enough where I'll go meet the family and, and study the case and uh, see what I can figure out. You know, you indicated that uh, you would have more cases in areas where they believe in reincarnation. I think you just made it transparently clear as to why that would be the instance, because here in the United States, let's let's say that your date is right, 20% of the Christians and and, you know, let, let's just, you know, round it off and say 25% of all Americans believe in that. That means 75% of the population could have a child telling them meaningful things about uh, a past life, uh, could have accompanying uh, uh, birthmarks. And we would, I mean, we, meaning that 75%, would for all intent and purposes ignore that, put it down to imagination, and et cetera, and so forth. How... How much of a stumbling block is, is that really to your work? Well, it is in the sense that we don't know how many cases are out there that we don't hear about because the parents don't even recognize. But I will say, I mean, we hear from a lot of parents where they may not have believed in it, but they're at least listening to what their kids are saying. So I remember getting one one time, I think from Arkansas, from this conservative Christian mom, said, we do not believe in reincarnation at all, in all capital letters. Um, <laughs> but, you know, her child was saying these things, and, and she was listening. Um, so I do think in, in that kind of situation, the kids have to say more to get their parents' attention. You know, a, a few comments are just going to be, as you say, just dismissed right. as imagination. 
but in, in the really strong cases where the kids are persistent enough, then, then the parents often do take notice. But that doesn't mean that they want anyone else to know about it. So, um, again, it, it's, it's clear that it's harder to find cases in this country than, than in countries like India or Thailand or wherever. Uh, we don't really know if they're more common in those places or not or, or just that they're easier to find. You know, now, if I put on my Christopher Hitchens or Michael Shermer or, you know, that ilk hat mm-hmm. and, 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 and ask you, how can there possibly be such a thing as reincarnation when the population just keeps... I mean, we hit 7 billion people yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what... what what do the souls divide, or how do you explain that? I mean, how do you answer the the critic who comes to you with that kind of a comment? Well, a lot of people have wondered about that, whether the the population explosion uh, rules out reincarnation, but it, it turns out it's pretty clear that it doesn't. Uh, there was a fellow at Johns Hopkins a few years ago who wrote a paper on this, actually, and had estimated, uh, if you look at the best estimates and Certainly, it requires an estimate, but it looks like about 105 billion people have lived here on Earth, and you know we've got seven billion right now. So there are plenty of people who have lived and died before uh, that could continue to sort of recycle. Now, it would mean, of course, that um, the reincarnation wouldn't necessarily be immediate. That there would be some sort of bardo state or whatever where people could be disincarnate where they wouldn't be on Earth at, at the minute. Um, but, I mean, there's no reason that I know of to, to think that there couldn't be a, a, another place where, where souls would right. be. And um, the as the population continues to enlarge, it, it would mean that the amount of time between lives would have to get smaller. But again, there's no reason to think that it couldn't. So it, it's... Um, the increase in population certainly does not rule out reincarnation. Right. I mean, the mathematically, you would have to assume that uh, there was a limited number of souls. They all incarnated at a given point, and then they begin coming back, as opposed to, as you say, having some bardo, some in-between place where, for all intent and purposes, maybe some souls didn't come in initially at all until the 18th or 19th century. Uh, well, that's right. I mean, the, the question sort of presupposes that you couldn't have new souls coming along, but uh, I don't, I don't know that that you couldn't. You know, maybe the, the <laughs> new souls get created, and then those continue to to reincarnate just like the old ones today. Right. Okay. We don't understand quantum physics. How is it we think we can understand that? I'll take that <laughs> cue. Uh, are there any typical statements that children make about their previous lives, Doctor Tucker? Well, yes, they they tend to focus on the events at the end of the previous life. Uh, about 75% of them will talk about the way the previous person died. And uh, they'll also talk about people and, and events from near the end of the life. Um, the, uh, it, it seems that the memory just sort of picks up where the last life left off. Um, so the, the people that they knew at the end of the life, they'd be much more likely to talk. It's, it's the sort of the recency of the association more than the, the length of it. So, a, And that a child is remembering the life of an adult 
be much more likely to talk about a spouse or their kids than they would be to talk about their parents. Uh, now, there are exceptions to that. And, and there are exceptions where kids will come up, they're talking about a life of an adult and will mention what school they went to. But again, it's sort of like our, our memory in this life. I mean, our minds are mostly focused on present events, but of course, there are past ones there, too. Um, Do they ever talk about, you know, life between life? I mean, what it's like, this, you know, this, this whole concept of, of uh, where we go between lives? Well, they do. I mean, most of them don't say anything about time between lives, but about 20% of them will. And the ones that do, uh, we've looked at this, this statistically and found that the ones that do talk about events between lives are more likely to remember names and, and more verified statements from a past life than, than the kids that don't. So it, it seems like it's worth at least looking at, at uh, what they have to say. Um, some talk about staying nearby, and um, they may talk about events that the previous family went through, like the funeral of the previous person. Uh, there's one little girl in Thailand who complained that her ashes were scattered rather than buried the way she had wanted them, and, and she made a lot of statements. But the, it turned out that when the previous woman was identified, um, she had wanted her ashes to be buried under the, the bow tree of the temple complex where she studied. Well, after she died, her daughter went to bury them, but the root system of the tree was so extensive that she couldn't bury them, so she scattered them instead. So that was an example of where a kid, even talking about events between lives, the statements turned out to be verified to, to be accurate. Um, and then other kids will talk about going to other realms, um, like heaven. In fact, the American kids may use the word heaven. And... Um, the uh, the reports in some ways are similar to uh, the near-death experience reports that, that we get from various places. There, there are some, difference, but, uh, some differences, but there are also some similarities. Sometimes kids will talk about essentially having out-of-body experiences before going to another realm. And then some of the kids will say either that they chose their current parents or that they were led to their, their current parents by guides or that sort of thing. Um, well, and then some of them will also talk about um, events that, that happened during the pregnancy, either things that their parents experienced, and in that case the kids may say that they were sort of hovering over the parents and, and seeing things. Or they may talk about actual experiences in the womb or the experiences of being born, um, occasionally with, with details that can be verified. You, you. Uh, there's so many questions I've got for you, and we've got about three minutes left, so I've got to pick and choose here. You mentioned prenatal memories just now as you were talking, mm-hmm. uh, and and in two concepts, one as hovering above during the pregnancy, the other as within. If I understood mm-hmm. you correctly, mm-hmm. so and and I mean that becomes kind of a a touchy subject for lots of people, mm-hmm. but. Uh, what would your information suggest? I mean, is, is do these chi- uh, children? I know you've run prenatal memory tests, experiments, actual studies, and you and you and you discuss them in your book. But do these children? Do they exist in the womb, or are they still outside of the womb, experiencing the womb somehow in a out of body type of way? Well, you know that's sort of a 
to be honest, a political issue that I, or it's sort of implied, a political issue. It is very that, political. Yeah, I know. That, that I try to stay away from. But, it, but I mean, you can make a case sort of for either side of the, the argument in the sense that we certainly have a number of cases where the child, the previous person died uh, within nine months before the child was born. So that they didn't enter the womb at conception in any case because they were still alive in the other body. Um, yeah, at the same time, we've, we've got these kids who, who talk about a couple of very dramatic cases of, of sort of grieving that they were not able to be born um, because of, of memories of, of being in the womb of, of another person. Um, so, you know, you can sort of take from it yeah. what you will. But, but, but regardless... We're, I mean, we're out of time. Okay. We're out of time, Dr. Tucker, and that is, I mean, that is very political. You and I could spend the hour on that. I want everyone <laughs> right. to know, before you get off, how to reach you. So give them your information in 30 seconds, please. Uh, well, the best way to reach me is probably by email. Of course, people can Google me. It's the University of Virginia. My name is Jim Tucker. Um, my email address is one of these weird university ones, but it's jbt8n at virginia.edu. But again, if, if people Google me, they can, can certainly find me. And, and if they have children who are talking about these things, I would love to hear from parents. Absolutely. And the book is Life Before Life, Children's Memories of Previous Lives. Our guest has been Dr. Jim B. Tucker. Don't miss that. When you can Google him, he is the wiki listed. He is listed on wiki, I should say. So you can find links there to get to him. And if you have the stories, do. I mean, do. We've come to the end of another hour of Provocative Enlightenment, and I want to thank you all for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed our show, and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And if you have comments on our show, do let us know. Okay, until next time, remember, believing in yourself always matters.